When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, APGov. Welcome to the review. So I'm going to break this into two episodes. Uh, the first one will be on Unit 4. The second one will be on Unit 5. Uh, throughout the test, please note that there's going to be all kinds of questions that have passages from some of our required documents, like Fed 78 and things like that. Uh, there will be charts, there will be graphs and things like that you have to analyze. So just be prepared for those types of questions uh, on the test. All right, so running through the Unit 4 material. Now, like I've told you multiple times, when I do a review, I take topics from the questions and I put them into the review. So if you see it on this test review, there's a good chance you're going to see it uh, on the test. So just be aware. Uh, all right, so we pick up, the first thing is the congressional differences between the House and the Senate. So let's do a little comparison for most of the stuff. There will be a couple things that we don't compare. First off, the size. The House, remember, has 435 people. The Senate only has 100. Constituents, <clears throat> remember that the House represents a small district, maybe not small, but smaller than states, and the Senate is going to represent the state. Now, this is a key difference to remember in that when we're talking about representation, we're talking about who does what, the House has to represent their individual constituents. And so that's what the House is geared for. It is meant to represent the people of those districts. And a House member has to take into account this piece of legislation how is it going to affect my individuals? Versus the Senate, the Senate is supposed to represent the entire state. And they really have to take into account, well, how is this going to help the state? They can't really think in terms of, okay, well, this might help this one group in my state. Now they can, because they'll pass pieces of legislation that only helps groups in certain states. Uh, but overall, that's really the big difference. The House is supposed to represent individuals, and the Senate is going to represent the um, the state. Uh, procedure. Procedure is pretty similar to both. It is, um, you know, the job is to legislate. That is the the end of the day. That is the that's what they were created for. That's what they're there for. They do some other things, uh, but for the most part, they are to legislate. And that we went through that process where a bill is introduced, it goes to uh, committees. The committees do their work. It then goes to the full floor, whether it's the House or the Senate, gets voted on. If it passes favorably, then it goes to the other side and the process repeats itself until it gets to the president for a signature. Debates. Remember, the House has very limited debate. There's too many people. There's 435. They cannot have a, I don't want to say unregulated, but untimed, I guess would be the best way to say it, um, untimed uh, debate because at the end of the day, there's too many people. 435 people could not have a conversation and get anything done versus the House where they have unlimited. And that leads to filibusters and things like that. Bills. Um, remember, on the House side, all revenue bills have to start over there. 
Okay, I think that's the big difference. Uh, leadership, pretty similar, and leadership as the positions for the most part are the same. There are a few differences. Uh, remember, there is a Speaker of the House and only a Speaker of the House. There is no such thing as a Speaker of the Senate. So please don't ever, I know you're not going to be writing on this test, but please never write, oh, hey, Speaker of the Senate. It's just not a thing. Uh, so the House has the Speaker of the House, and they are the ones that drive really everything. They drive the legislative agenda. They drive committee assignments. Uh, just really everything is going to go and flow through them. Um, then you have the majority minority leaders. Now you have them on both sides, the House and the Senate. They're a little bit different, though. On the House side, the majority leader is going to be someone that works with uh, answers to uh, the Speaker of the House. They're kind of like their right-hand person uh, in getting the agenda pushed through and things like that. Um, then the minority leader on the House side really can't do much because they don't have the tools that the, Sen that the Senate has um, as a minority party leader. Uh, so they, they're there. I mean, they coordinate their members. They're going to work on debates and things like that. But at the end of the day, as far as tools that they have, like the filibuster on the Senate side, the minority leader in the House doesn't have that. And then you got the whips. The whips are the same for both sides. The whips are going to be the go-betweens. They're the ones that if you're a rookie House member or a rookie senator and you have problems, you have issues, you're going to go to the whip and talk to them. The whip is going to be the one that comes around uh, rounding up votes, trying to figure out, hey, is this person voting with the party? Or are they going against the party? And then they're going to try and figure out why you're going against the party and you know, maybe do some log rolling uh, with you on that. So um, <clears throat> on the Senate side, the majority minority leader are the ones that are supposed to push the legislation. The majority leader is allowed to kind of take control uh, of that. And so they will be kind of the de facto leadership of the Senate. You do have the president pro tempore, which is just kind of a, you know, honorary position. They don't really have the power and the authority that the speaker does. And remember, the president of the Senate is never there. That's the vice president. And then the whips do the same thing. Now, the minority leader over there does have a few more tools. They have the filibuster that they can do. Um, and that's a big one. They have holds they can you know, work around or work with. Uh, so there are some tools that the minority leader can do in the Senate that they can't do on the House side. All right. Committees. Uh, committees exist on both sides. I did just like I did for the unit test, I did not do select or joint committee, so you won't see those. You'll only see standing and con conference committees. So remember, the standing committees, they also have subcommittees, but those are the permanent ones. They're in both houses, and they're going to be there from this session to the next. They're always going to be there. Uh, and they are some kind of big overarching kind of theme within the country, so education, agriculture, things like that. And then they break off into subcommittees from there to get into more specific things. So education, you know, that's a very, 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 very broad topic. So there'll be a lot of umbrella, I mean, excuse me, a lot of little subdivisions of the education uh, made up of the subcommittees. Uh, and it happens on both sides. And then you got the conference committees. Those happen when a bill passes the House in one version and the Senate in another. And they'll work out the differences and then send them back. The budget process. Remember the budget process, uh, the president and the Office of the Management and Budget will work throughout the year to create a budget. The president will go through it once it's been kind of finalized and make their changes, revisions, and then once they're prepared and ready, they'll send it over to Congress. Congress has the final authority to uh, pass or not pass the, the budget. So this is where you'll get into some work 
between the president and the Senate. I mean, it's basically the president and the House and Congress, excuse me. Bureaucratic power. Remember, the bureaucratic power doesn't really come from, I mean, they have the enforcement power. All right. They have that ability. They are able and allowed to um, make enforcement a thing and happen when a piece of legislation comes to them. Their big power and their big authority, though, comes from their ability to write up the regulations for those bills and laws that come to them. So if a bill passes, there's there's no real written guidelines. It's just, hey, here's the bill. Here's the law. It goes to the uh, agency in charge and they get to read it and write up their new regulations. That's pretty powerful because they get to decide how this thing's going to be enforced. Um, and so that's a pretty big deal for uh, the bureaucrats and the bureaucratic agencies. And that's where then you kind of their power comes from. It's almost a big separation of powers thing. Uh, let's see. Checks on the judicial branch. <clears throat> so remember the president, their two big ones are they get to pick the judges and they also have the power of enforcement. So the judicial branch makes a piece of legislation or excuse me, the, the Supreme Court judges a piece of whatever it is. Let's, they make a decision, okay? Uh, it's up to the president to enforce. And so that's a big deal because at the end of the day, the, the courts can't go out and enforce their decisions. And we've talked about several of the, the, the actions of the states and the, the president of where things were not done that the courts had said should be done. And that's a huge check that they have on the courts. The Congress, their real big one is the fact that they, first off, the Senate gets to confirm all appointments. And then the other big one is that they do have the impeachment power. So they have that authority. Uh, you know, we can get into some situations where, okay, the, the court has made this ruling that it's unconstitutional. And so Congress can always write up a new piece, piece of legislation, but that takes time. We can also say, well, hey, they can do an amendment, but that also takes time. The, 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 the really, don't, they don't have a quick check uh, on the branches. All right, we're going to take a break. Be back in just a second. All right, welcome back. So we're picking up with the formal and informal powers of the president. So uh, I'm not going to try and list out every single power that the president has. Uh, you do got to understand that the formal powers are those that are listed in the Constitution. So you probably can think of some of these, uh, but the veto power, that's a formal power. It's in the Constitution. It's one of those checks and balances that they have over the legislative branch. They're also the commander in chief. They also can make treaties with other countries. All of those things are listed in the Constitution. Now, remember that the president was not supposed to be this all-powerful entity that we kind of see it as today. It was supposed to really be uh, Congress that was going to run the country and do pretty much what the president does today uh, with making most of the decisions and really just you know, driving the country. Uh, and then you got informal powers. Now, informal powers are those things that the president has taken on. These are the ones that have made the president kind of who they are today as far as a entity, not the individual president that's in power right now. Informal powers include things like the executive orders. That's not really in the Constitution anywhere. It's just something the president can do because they are in charge of the executive branch. Same thing with executive agreements, those things that uh, those agreements with other countries. Uh, that's not a formal power. It's not written in the Constitution anywhere. But because they're able to make treaties, they've translated it into, well, hey, we can also do these executive agreement things where they get around some of the Senate approval. Uh, so just remember that difference. I don't think, if I, don't, I don't remember you having to pick out formal versus informal 
uh, but you do have to know the difference and things like that. All right, the vetoes, we, are, we just talked about those for a second. Remember, the president can veto pieces of legislation that Congress sends to them. Uh, it is within their right, uh, and it's pretty simple. The president gets it and just you know, vetoes it, and it is, is done. It goes back to Congress. Uh, that way. Now, Congress can always work on it uh, and, and try to make changes to, to get it passed through at some point. Uh, it's also kind of a threat. Uh, the president can use the veto as a threat. They can say, hey, if that piece of legislation gets to me, I'm going to veto it. And so Congress can kind of work on it within that and try to make changes to it that would make the president happy. It just depends on the relationship between the president and Congress at the time, uh, whether they're going to try to work around what the president wants or not. Now, the president also has the pocket veto which is where if the if Congress sends them a piece of legislation within 10 days of adjournment, the president can just let it sit and die uh, without vetoing it, without signing it, without doing anything. Uh, the congressional overrides, remember, this is something that Congress can do. Uh, they can always override a presidential veto with two-thirds of the full Congress saying, yes, we want to override this and, and pass it without presidential approval. It doesn't happen as often as one would think. Uh, it really depends on the popularity of the president. Unpopular presidents will have vetoes overridden more often than popular presidents will. Uh, and it's a big number, two-thirds of the full Congress, whatever that is, of 535. That's a large number, so it's, it's hard to get to. All right, congressional oversight. So congressional oversight is a power, uh, authority, uh, tool, however you want to look at it, of Congress and specifically of the committees within Congress. Uh, they can call in really anybody. It's typically going to be used over bureaucratic agencies, and they're not calling agencies because, oh, hey, you're doing a great job. We want to call you in and, and pat you on the back. Uh, typically, something has happened. Something has gone wrong, and so you're being called in to kind of be taken to task, and you have to answer for whatever it is your agency did. Now, typically, it's going to be the department heads. They're not going to call in some random bureaucrat uh, that works at a desk okay, um, in the IRS or the FCC or someplace like that. Uh, if one of those people has done something, they'll call in uh, the department heads and ask them, well, why are your people doing this? Why has this screw-up happened on your watch? They can all also call in pub, uh, public figures. Uh, in class, we mentioned the fact uh, that some of the, the college presidents were called in to talk about their stance on uh, some of the, the anti-Jewish rhetoric that was going on on their college campuses and, and were questioned about free speech and, and things like that. So they can call them public figures as well. Uh, typically, when we're talking about bureaucratic agencies being called in, you know, a couple of things can happen. Uh, because of your answers, your, your budget could be affected. Uh, people's jobs could be affected. Uh, Congress might decide, you know what, we're going to start regulating that a little bit differently, or we're going to write a piece of legislation that's going to change uh, what that bureaucratic agency is doing. So there are some things that can happen as a result of congressional oversight. It just depends on how bad the screw up was. Uh, all right, delegate trustee and political model of governing. So this is going to be, uh, if you're ever elected into office, how do you govern? All right, if you're a delegate, then you're typically going to do whatever your constituents think, even if it goes against what you believe in. So, hey, I'm pro-gun, but my constituents are anti-gun. I'm going to vote with them, and I'm going to vote for anti-gun legislation. As a trustee, I'm going to do what I think is best. So, I'm pro-gun, my constituents are anti-gun, but they elected me, they put their trust in me, and I know best, so I'm going to go with my pro-gun kind of gut. All right, Politico combines the two. 
and makes it to where, uh, not makes it, but it's a choice where you do both. On the larger issues, the issues that are going to be public and get questioned by the public, you're probably going to go with your constituents. So you're going to be delegate there. On the smaller things, the things that aren't going to come back to kind of bite you, you'll probably go trustee. Appellate versus district courts. Uh, appellate, remember, those are the ones that are going to hear cases on appeal. They will never hear a trial. There's not going to be witnesses and juries and evidence and those sorts of things at an appellate court. Uh, they will be the judges reviewing the records, reviewing the appeal and the reasoning behind it. Versus a district court where they have original jurisdiction means that's the entry point of every single federal case. Well, let's say 99%. There is some that goes right to the Supreme Court. But for the most part, me or you is probably going to end up in a federal district court if we've broken a federal law. And so they have original, that's the, the traditional courts where there's a judge with a jury, uh, lawyers, witnesses, evidence, and all those sorts of things. Mandatory versus discretionary spending. So mandatory spending, that is the spending that the Congress has to do. There is no choice. There is no, well, you know what? We spent this much last year and they didn't use all of it. Let's spend less this year. Mandatory spending, they have written laws and they have kind of written themselves into a corner, meaning they have to fund this. They have to spend here. Discretionary is where they get to choose. And so they can make some choices. They can make some decisions about the um, the spending. So think of the budgets uh, for the agencies. That stuff is is fluid. One year they might get X amount of dollars, the next year they might get more, they might get less the next year. Redistricting, reapportionment, and gerrymandering. So reapportionment, remember, that is the shuffling of the numbers in the House. Now, all this stuff only applies to the House. There is no redistricting for the state. There's no reapportionment for the Senate. There's no reapportionment. There's no reapportionment for the Senate. There's no redistricting for the Senate. There's no gerrymandering for the Senate because it's all the state. Reapportionment, though, that's the shuffling of the 435. So every 10 years we have a census, and some states are going to gain people, some states are going to lose people. Uh, when that happens, if you gain enough, then you gain seats in the House of Representatives. If said state gains a seat, then another state has to lose a seat. There's no way uh, to, for everybody to just keep the same amount of states and some states gain. That somebody has to lose. That's reapportionment where they shuffle that 435 around. That leads to redistricting. Those that gain or lose seats have to redistrict. There's no choice. If they gain a seat, they have to redistrict to that new number of seats. If they lose a seat, they have to redistrict to that new number. Most states will take the time as well to go ahead and redistrict. Georgia did, even though we didn't gain or lose seats uh, in the most recent census. So we went ahead and redistricted. It just makes good sense because you have population shifts within uh, your state. Now, that leads to gerrymandering. Gerrymandering is where the lines are drawn along whatever lines you want to use. Uh, remember, they are done by the state legislature. So whichever party is in charge, the majority party, uh, they get to draw the lines for the, the next 10 years. So it's a big deal. It's an important one. Uh, now, gerrymandering can happen in you know, politics, race, whatever you want to call it. Uh, there's any number of things that can, reasons that you know we could consider lines to be gerrymandered. Uh, Georgia's most recent were just challenged uh, and got overturned. And so they had to go back to the drawing board for those. Executive agreements. Uh, so we just talked about these a little bit up top. They come from the power of the president uh, to be able to uh, make treaties. Okay, that's a formal power. They can make treaties with other countries. Um, it is, but the executive agreements is similar. It is just, uh, 
it, it typically is going to concern some kind of administrative matter. Um, and it's where the president and the other head of a government comes to kind of an agreement. Um, and they are, they're kind of flimsy might be a good way to say it because they're, there's not really legally binding. And so, um, but we do look at them as kind of an, so they're not that formal contract, I guess would be the best way to say it. They are in agreement. Hey, we're going to do this, but they can be easily broken. Uh, but they get around the Senate approval. Uh, Fed 78. Remember, this is the cost, uh, the foundational document you got to know uh, that deals with the courts. And the question was, well, we're, we're fearful that the courts are going to become too powerful, uh, too strong. And so the, the, the writing here to, to say was, that, well, you know what? They're actually the weakest branch because they can't do anything past make these decisions. Once they make their decision, who's going to go enforce that decision? Well, they're relying on other people. They're relying on the executive branch. They're relying on Congress. They're relying on the states to enforce this stuff, and they don't have any power or authority beyond making the decision. So they're actually going to be pretty weak, which is true, in that they can't enforce their decisions. Their decisions have power because other people enforce them. All right, let's take one last break for this one. All right, welcome back. Wrapping up the Unit 4 review, we got just a few things. Monetary versus fiscal policy. So monetary policy is what the Federal Reserve does. This is the controlling of the money supply. Uh, and they have two tasks. They have to fight unemployment and they have to fight inflation. Uh, monetary policy deals with the manipulation of the money supply through uh, things like increasing the money supply and decreasing the money supply. And they do that through their three tools. They have the reserve requirement, the discount rate, and the buying and selling of bonds. That's what monetary policy is, okay? Then you've got fiscal policy. Fiscal policy is what Congress and the president can do. Uh, and they have really two things at their disposal. They can increase or decrease taxes, and they can increase or decrease their spending. And so they're, they're gonna, both these things are going to be used to try and manipulate the economy. But it's different entities that do that. You've got the monetary policy with the Federal Reserve, and then you've got and remember the Federal Reserve is an independent agency. So they're apart from what the president is doing. They're apart from what Congress is doing. Um, and then you've got fiscal policy, which is what the president and Congress can do to try and manipulate the economy. The Rules Committee, remember, this is one of the most important committees in all of Congress. They're the ones that are in the House only, and they dictate what happens to a bill after it has made it out of uh, the regular committee. So, hey, we passed this bill, let's send it to the full floor. Well, it's got to make a stop at the Rules Committee first. And remember, they're the ones that are going to set the debate schedule for it. Who gets to talk? How long? They're going to set the amendments. Uh, is this an open or closed thing? So they're going to get to do all that stuff. So they can really set a bill up for success or they can set it up for failure uh, based on what they do with some of those things. Independent agencies, don't get them confused with independent regulatory commissions. Uh, both of them are, are independent of the president and Congress. Independent executive agencies don't have that regulatory power that quite often the regulatory commissions do. So think of NASA, think of the Federal Reserve. Uh, those are independent agencies. They go off and they do their thing uh, kind of apart from the rest of the government, apart from the president, apart from Congress, minus funding and, and some things like that. Iron triangles, that is the relationship between uh, the committees and subcommittees of Congress, the interest groups, and that is a broad way to say interest groups, businesses, corporations, you know, all those kinds of things, and then the bureaucratic agencies that deal with them. 
So in one of our slides, the example was the committee was the subcommittee on tobacco, a subcommittee of the agricultural committee, uh, the tobacco industry, and the ATF, the alcohol, tobacco, and firearm. Okay. Uh, and there's the relationship between those three and just the money that exchanges hands in, in the form of donations, not like backroom bribes and things like that. Uh, the watchdog, the lobbying that goes on. Uh, it's all intermingled in that iron triangle. Judicial activism versus restraint. So activism is where the judges are taking an active role and trying to create policy through their decisions. They're going to use their personal ideologies. They're willing to overturn. They're willing to make sometimes unpopular decisions when it comes down to judicial activism. And, you know, we use the example in class of Brown versus Board. Uh, it would have been so easy for the judges back then in 1954 to just take a look at Plessy versus Ferguson and say, hey, this has already been decided. We're just going to let that roll. But they chose to overturn it. Uh, that's judicial activism. More recently, Dobbs versus Mississippi, the abortion case that overturned Roe versus Wade. To me, that's activism. They overturned a precedent case. Okay, Restraint is going to be where judges are going to be heavily reliant on the past, whether it is the framers of the Constitution and what they thought when they were writing this, this document that we use so heavily, the Constitution, or what the you know, judges made in other decisions that are similar to theirs. Uh, and so... <clears throat> we use Texas versus Johnson, very unpopular decision, but the judges made what they felt was the, the the decision that was as close to the letter of the law of what the First Amendment of free speech said to allow the burning of the flag. Finally, you got log rolling. Log rolling is just the agreements that uh, Congress people, the presidents, the bureaucratic agents, all these people make it. It's basically how the, le the legislative process goes uh, and, and works. It's through all the favors and the agreements that that uh, the different people, whether it's Congress and the president making a deal, whether it's Congress to Congress making a deal, whoever it might be. All right, that is Unit 4. Unit 5 will come out a little bit later. Thanks for listening.